0: I didn't think it would happen in my lifetime again, you know, so that was exciting. And I'm still, I mean, many of you are still pinching yourself, like you're going to be like, wait to see the Super Bowl day. Like, no, this is actually happening. That actually just happened. What I want to do for us just for a little bit here is to unpack for you the that just happened moment of all that just happened moments in the history of the world. And it actually started out as a please tell me that didn't just happen kind of a moment. But what it became was a tell me that just happened kind of a moment. Now, you perhaps know where I'm leading, but I want to look here in Matthew 28 for just a little bit about and really kind of set up for you a story that really changed the trajectory of human history. Now, it started out as somewhat of a devastating story, as a sad and tragic story, because for a group of people who had come to, to follow after this rabbi and this teacher named Jesus, um, it looked like it wasn't ending in such a good way. In fact, they had spent their entire lives, or, or they had spent his entire ministry for three years investing their entire lives into following after this rabbi and this teacher that invited them into life with him. And they had come to respect him and just really be enamored with him and fall in love With him, And they followed him around and they learned uh, just anything you could possibly imagine. They learned the mysteries of the kingdom of God and the secrets uh, of heaven. And they just leaned in every time this man spoke and they watched him do things that no other man had ever done. And um, as they began to talk about who this man might be, they started to really come to believe that this guy was exactly who he said he was, which was the son of God. And they started to put their hope and their stock into him being that Messiah that they had been waiting for so many years, that Savior of the world that that had finally come. Now a lot of people didn't expect the Savior to come this way. They thought he might be a political leader or some military leader. But these guys saw something unique in this guy and so they started to put all of their hope that he really was the one that he said that he was. Now What they didn't expect, even though he had been telling them that this day would come, is that he would go to the cross, that he would die, that he would be crucified. Now, according to their tradition and early Jewish tradition, any man that went to the cross and was crucified was considered to be under a curse, and so this didn't make any sense to them at all. And so when Jesus breathed his last breath and said, it is finished, and they watched this gruesome scene unfold, it was one of those most it was the most devastating moment of their lives. Did that just happen? How could that have just happened? But what they didn't realize is that all of these things that he had been saying and the, the ways that he had been describing to them that he would bring victory was a spiritual reality, but what would happen was in three days, Jesus would come out of that grave in bodily form that he would resurrect from the grave. And a different kind of that-just-happened kind of a moment would unfold that would change the trajectory of human existence. And if you look in Matthew 28, it's a pretty incredible story. It's really one of those stories that never gets old. It's one of those moments that never gets old, and it's really at the core of our faith as Christians. It says that now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men you got big Roman guards that are literally in fetal position on the ground, overwhelmed by this angel that had just come and rolled this stone away. The angel said to the woman, "'Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he once lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you.' So they departed quickly from the tomb." with fear and great joy, and ran to tell the disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came up, and they took hold of his feet. Did that just happen? Did that just happen? They grabbed hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me there. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And then they saw him, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Jesus, uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age that just happened, and it did that did just happen and because that happened what came out of Jesus's mouth after he raised up from the dead should be one of those we need to write this down kind of things when he opens his mouth and he gives some instruction the man that raised from the dead you write it down and then you get busy doing whatever it was that he just said And here's what he told them. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. So whatever the resurrected man says, we do. Because everything that he said was true. If he came out of that grave, which he did, and rose from the dead, then he truly was the son of God. And so those marching orders are from the mouth of God himself. Fast forward to today. In the United States alone, there are around 180 million who have no connection to a local church, making it one of the fastest growing mission fields in the Western Hemisphere. It is estimated that 670,000 to 700,000 people leave the traditional church every year. Never has there been a more pressing need for us to return to and recapture Jesus' mandate for the church, and that's to go and make disciples. And not just go and make converts. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey and observe everything that I have commanded you to do. Never have we had a more just open opportunity than we have right now as we are in one of the fastest-growing mission fields in the world. We don't have to travel anywhere. We don't even have to go anywhere. It's right in our backyard. So if we know that this is the mandate from Jesus, if we know that this these were the words spoken by the Messiah, the risen one, why don't we do that? And I don't just mean us as individuals, but why as churches do we not really hold to that? Why do we not live that out and really do it in the way that Jesus did it. I think there's some really, honestly, valid reasons, if we're honest, that we we don't do it. The first is, I think that a lot of times we think that it's dependent on me. It's dependent on me. And so that's overwhelming for us, I think. That like this is all dependent on me to go and do this mission, to live out this mission. And with this sense of duty, we sort of march out and we take it all on our own back. And we're like, okay, I gotta make disciples of like all nations, like me. But I think we miss something when we do that. And this is the very last part of this was surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. It's not by our power. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 8, Paul's talking about, talking to, to, to the Corinthians and saying, listen, I know you guys are all like about like, I was led by Apollos or I was led by Paul, but he's, he's like, listen, we are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work God gave us. I planted the seed in your heart, Apollos watered it, but it was God that made it grow. And so we have to remember that it's not on us, it's on on God. He's the one that truly transforms lives. He's the one that truly forms disciples. It's just our job to go and step into that great commission that he's called us to, to be obedient to that. I think the second thing we often think is that somebody else will do it. Whether it be our kids, and we think that hey, somebody else will disciple my kids, and you know, if I just go take them to that particular school, somebody will disciple them there. If I just bring them to church on the weekend, somebody will disciple them there. Somebody will lead them there. And we always think maybe, or, or maybe it's people in your family, like well, somebody will disciple them, right? Somebody will disciple them, or maybe it's a friend or somebody in your network of relationships, and we think you know somebody will disciple them. There's this term; it's called the bystander effect, and you. You've probably understood this dynamic at some level, but the bystander effect refers to the phenomenon in which the greater the number of people present, the less likely people are to help a person in distress. Like if there's an emergency and there's a lot of people around, you're less likely to help someone when there's a lot of people around because being part of a large uh, crowd makes it so no single person has to take responsibility for an action or inaction. It's interesting, right? Right? Is a psychological you know, dynamic that happens. And I think that the same thing kind of happens in the church. The same thing happens uh, in, in modern times when it comes to disciple making is that we all think that somebody else is going to take responsibility for it, but we're all responsible. Number three, I think that we might think, I have a long way to go myself. Like, if you just knew my story, if you knew my shortcomings, if you knew where I was at as a disciple, I got no business discipling anyone else. Now, I'll go ahead and concede that I think we should be on the journey if we're trying to disciple others, right? We should be pursuing Jesus at a minimum. But nobody said we had to do that perfectly. And nobody said we had to be perfect. In fact, if perfection is the goal before you disciple anyone, nobody's discipling anybody this side of heaven. And so at some point, we've got to break beyond this, like I'm not enough. And again, remember, it's dependent on Jesus. And I'm going to, in my imperfection, step into the process and see what God wants to do through me. The last thing that we think is that we don't know how. Like, I I don't know how to make a disciple. And I'm going to speak to that a little bit today. Um, But I also want to say this is the reason Stephen and I felt compelled to write elementary discipleship is because even leaders, it can be challenging for us to know how does that look? Like, how does that, like, what do you talk about? How do you lead somebody through this? And so we, um, we, uh, we created this as a tool to help everyday people make disciples of people around them. Um, to simplify something that I think in some ways the church has made difficult. And a couple of things that I think we're going to be, we're going to be rolling out here to help with the we, I don't know how is one of the things we're going to do is we're going to get the elements on the app to where it could easily be. You could just have discipleship conversations with people real easily with just having your phone in your hand. The second thing is the children seems working on some things to incorporate tools from elementary discipleship to help you as a parent disciple your kids. And so I say all that to say that this is what we're all in on. It's disciple making. This is what we're all in on. This is the culture that we're trying to create here. And it's not just a culture of information transfer, it's a, a culture of transformation and that really comes through disciple making. So let's speak to this idea of disciple making here for just a little bit. Some of you have probably heard me talk about this before, but I want to recapture it a little bit today um, and, and many of you have not heard it. <clears throat> so Jesus says, I, as I have been sent, so I'm sending you. So the question I want to ask today is, how was Jesus sent? And what does he model for us about disciple making? If we're going to do disciple making, the best person we can look to is like, how did Jesus do it? I mean, he's the one that initiated this mission, so in what way did he carry this out? And the first thing I think to say here is that it's, it's relational. That's the word. And that's what we try to really create that's different around here. It's not just what happens from a stage, or it's not just what happens as we communicate information in that way. Again, it's a relational thing that takes place as we journey together uh, in intimacy with Jesus. And this is how Jesus said, he invited 12 guys on a relational journey with him to do life with him and to grow alongside him. So disciple making happens best in the context of community. And what I want to show you today is that what we see is the commission is really in the invitation. What's the invitation? The invitation is Jesus' initial invitation to the disciples when he said, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And so the commission can really be found there. And what we find really in that invitation is what we'll call four dimensions of disciple making. So here's the four dimensions of disciple making. Number one, they all start with D so you can remember them. Number one, direction, direction. Jesus first gave a directional statement in the invitation, come. It's really an invitation, come to me. And then what we'll see is that Jesus teaches, he leads, he directs his disciples, right? He gives them, he communicates with them, he teaches them his ways. He demonstrates, as we'll see here in just a minute, his his works as well. Jesus called people to himself. And the first task of disciple maker is to direct people to Jesus. And what I love about Jesus is he had this uncanny ability to meet people right where they're at. In fact, It got him this unsavory reputation really among the religious leaders that he was a friend of sinners. And in one exchange, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house with many tax collectors and sinners. They were all eating with him and disciples and the disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so Jesus picks up on what they're saying, and he's over here saying, like, you know, to the disciples, the Pharisees are saying to the disciples, like, why does he eat with, you know, sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus over here, like, if you want to talk, like, I'm right here. Like, you can direct your question to me. And what he says is, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus has this ability to meet people right where they're at. And it's something, it's a posture that we all must develop if we're going to be disciple makers in the way that Jesus was. I like how Alex Absalom points out, he says that discipleship really starts at hello. Really, in any conversation you're in with somebody, discipleship really starts at hello. Not in an I have an agenda kind of a way, just in an I love you kind of a way, and I'm going to introduce you to the the best thing in my life kind of a way. And so we step into discipleship conversations really, or discipleship relationships really at hello. Now, most of us aren't going to introduce someone to Jesus in a singular moment. That might happen, and there's been times in the past where somebody in a singular moment was led at a rally to convert to Christianity or whatever it might be, or maybe you've had a moment in your life where you've shared the gospel with somebody and they've come to Jesus in that way, but when we're really talking about true discipleship, it's an investment that takes place over time, right? If we're really talking about making disciples, not just making converts, it's really just it's this process that happens over time. And so we use this arrow actually as one of our tools to kind of just ask people and assess with people, where are you at? Like if you were gonna, if we were gonna ask you today, like where are you at with God? Like what's your and maybe your word is up there, maybe it's not, but if you had to use one of these words, like where would you say you are on this continuum? And you know, I'll, honestly, a lot of times in our disciple-making conversations with people, or when we start, um, we start with a new group of people. I'll ask that question: to say, and if maybe the word's not on there, what's what's your word? Like, what if you were going to describe in a word your relationship with God, or or even your thoughts about God, or whatever? What is it? Now, you know, the the point here is we need to learn how to meet people where they're at. There's a guy that I was talking to last week. He's an atheist, and so he's in the curiosity stage for sure. Because he's asking me questions about church. He's asking me things. And then, you know, he's curious, but he's like, I, you know, I don't, I don't really believe in God. I was like, well, what do you believe in? Like, are you just, is it just a naturalism kind of thing? Like, how do you believe everything came into existence? Yeah, thought about it a little bit by the end of it we had kind of established that you know there's probably an intelligence you know behind all that exists in the universe and that's probably most plausible and so we're in the curiosity so I'm just planting seeds right I don't know what will come with that but you know in all likelihood I'm not going to in a singular moment like walk him all the way through to like now he's going out and making the disciples of other people right somebody in the acceptance stage totally different situation right right same thing with repentance, restoration, so on and so forth. Bottom line is, and again, this is just a model. It's not a perfect model. We need to identify where people are at. And we need to meet them where they're at. And this is really the first task of the disciple makers, is to direct people to Jesus. Then once people have Jesus in their life, we can direct them and redirect them in the second part of the Great Commission, which is teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Until Jesus is an authority in their life, what good is it for me to be like, you know, Jesus said you should do this out of the other, right? I'm not trying to, like, do behavioral modification. For, now, people have asked my advice. I'm happy to be like, you know, I think your marriage would be a little better. If you're asking me marriage advice, let me give you a little bit of advice, right? I'm not talking about that. What I'm, what I'm saying is task number one should be direct people to Jesus and let Jesus do the work from there. And then as they grow in Jesus, we get the opportunity to direct them and teach them in the way that Jesus did share everything that Jesus taught them. Now, one of the other things I'll say here just real quick, I think that a lot of times we've kind of emphasized this or felt like it needs to be this canned presentation that we give. Like, hey, well, I have you here in the elevator. Like, you know, let me just, <laughs> can, I, can I share a couple of things with you? That kind of thing, you know? Um, now, if that's your style, great. You know, if, if, if the Lord is lifted up, I'm all for it. That's fine. But what I'll say is I, I would encourage you to think about it, not in terms of this perfect presentation, but in terms of a conversation. What kind of conversations are you having? That are spiritual conversations that are helping direct people toward Jesus. Because this is really ultimately how he did it. Sure, he gave, um, you know, lectures for sure, you could say, or he gave, he gave some talks But man, some of the best stuff happened in conversation with Jesus after the talk. Like the guys would sit around after and be like, hey, you told that story. Like what did you mean by this, that, or the other? And then they would be digging in together. They'd be having this conversation. So I'd encourage you, rather than thinking about this as a presentation, think about it as an ongoing conversation with people as we help to direct them toward Jesus. Meeting them where they are and then drawing them, allowing Jesus to draw them to himself. Now, I think this is really where the traditional church model really ends, is in direction. Like, that really becomes the entirety of discipleship for a lot of the traditional church model, and that's part of the problem. In other words, it's like, you come for the lecture, you come for the thing, we teach you, we give you some good biblical information, and then you take that and run with that, good luck, hope it works out, you know? But the way of Jesus went further than that, and again, you're going to notice that the rest of these things can't really happen aside from in the context of relationship with others. Because the next one, Jesus said, was follow me. Follow me. Come, follow in my footsteps. Number, dimension number two is demonstration. That we better be backing up with our life what we say with our mouth, right? If we're going to be teaching people about Jesus, we better be showing it with our life as well. And Jesus' invitation goes beyond just direction. He's inviting them to literally and spiritually follow him around. They went everywhere he went for three years. They're with him. They're learning from him. They're, learning. they're watching him pray. They're watching him uh, take care of people. They're watching him serve. They're, they're watching him do these things. They're not just getting lectures about these things. They're, they're in the mix with Jesus. He's doing these things. They're literally following him around. Now, if you've ever worked at a restaurant or uh, you've ever been to a restaurant even, even you've known at some point you've, you've um, gone into a restaurant and the server will come up and they'll, sometimes they'll have somebody with them, and they'll be like, um, you know, hey, my name is Josh, and uh, this is Molly. Molly's going to be shadowing me today. You know what I'm saying? This, this is how it always happens. This is how they teach... People had a, and, you know, we all know that Molly is the most incompetent person in the room at this point, right? Molly knows it. Like, we all know it. Like, she doesn't know what she's doing at all. Like, she's the in-training person. She's the shadow. Like, and she literally just follows the, the waiter, the waitress around, like, everywhere they go. Like, hey, why don't you get them a basket of bread or something? You know, like, that's all we're trusting you with so far, you know? And so, but over time, as Molly does the shadow thing, then eventually Molly gets to be a server herself, right? And that's just a minor thing. We do that with, you know, waiters and waitresses. You know, you can name any specific, you know, art or craft. You're not just going to tell somebody how to do it. When it comes to CrossFit, I could tell people, describe for somebody what a power clean is, but if I don't show them how to do it, It's not going to be very effective, right? If you're teaching somebody how to play guitar, you could tell them, well, "Well, here's the chords, and let me just walk you through it. Now go play it. And it's not going to be very effective. You have to teach, you have to demonstrate that to them, right? And so in any art or any skill set that we teach anyone else, we do this. Why don't we do it when it comes to spirituality? Why don't we do it when it comes to the things of God? To say, hey, come walk with me. I want, I want to give you a, a front row seat into my marriage. I want to give you a front row seat into how I parent my kids. I want you to, to step into my life. I'm not going to do it all perfectly. I'll point out to you when I've made a mistake or when I've blown it or whatever it might be. But we give people a front row seat of what it looks like to follow Jesus in real life and real time. And Jesus, he invites these 12 guys on the journey with them, and that's what they do. They shadow him for three years. They essentially become apprentices of him. They sit under his teaching, but beyond that, they immerse themselves in his way of life. And so he doesn't just teach them about prayer. He models them. He doesn't just teach them about the way of love. He shows them in every interaction that he has. He doesn't just tell them they should serve. He goes first by washing their feet. They get a front row seat. Paul tells the Corinthians this, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is what disciple makers do. They say, listen, I'm going to do my best to follow the example of Christ. And as far as I do that, follow my example. And the things that I don't do that on, we'll acknowledge that. Don't follow my example on that stuff, right? I'm I'm, I'm growing. But even follow my example as somebody's humble enough to acknowledge their weaknesses and grow in those things. I heard somebody say one time that you might be the only Bible that some people ever read. And that may be true. You might also be the only representative of Jesus that some people ever encounter. So if that's true, what impression would we be left with about who Jesus is? Think about that in your encounters. Now, the good news is if you're relationally walking with somebody, you get more than one opportunity to make an impression about who Jesus is. And hopefully that's, that's a good thing. Sorry, there's one of those little like, fruit flies about to go in my nose. So, okay, I'm good now. But I think that we need to be thinking about this. So when we're walking with people, when we're inviting people into discipling relationships, what does that look like? What impression are we leaving? There's a guy that uh, Stephen and I both know and we've come, come to know here over the last uh, year or so. And uh, he's, he's, he's an interesting cat. And uh, he acknowledges this. And in fact, he, he said to me the other day, he's like, you know, he's like, you know, because we were having a conversation about something. And he said, he's like, you know what? I don't try to, but a lot of times I just rub people the wrong way, and, uh, you know, and I'm like, I'm not easily offended, so I'm an easy guy to have a conversation with, but he's like, and he does rub people the wrong way. He's not wrong about that, and, uh, but, you know, it's a lot of people just don't get him, but um, I've actually come to really appreciate and enjoy this guy, uh, but um, one of the things he said to me the other day was he, he had asked Stephen to, like, help him out with something, and then he, he told me why. He said, yeah, I asked Stephen to help me out. Um, because, you know, you know, Stephen loves everybody. You know, He said it like it was an annoying thing, like, but like that was his acknowledgement that like the reason I asked Stephen is because Stephen, you know, he just loves everybody. Like, you know, like who loves everybody? You know, anyway, but Stephen loves everybody, and so he asked Stephen to help him out with this thing. And what I love about that is that it's true, you know, and he picks up on this. This guy isn't even a, you know, this guy's not a Jesus follower. He picks up on the fact that, Stephen is just a guy that loves everybody, and so he's going to ask him and reach out to him. And so I asked the question, what impression would people have, again, of you? Would you, give a, would you be a good model of who Jesus is? And I think we need to be thinking about the example that we are leaving. There's nothing quite as powerful as our example. That goes for our kids, that goes for those in our workplace, that goes for really anybody that we're in a discipling kind of relationship with. This is a critical dimension of disciple-making. The third dimension is development. Disciple-making takes ongoing development. Jesus says, I will make you. I will make you. I will make you. I will form you. I will continue to make you. Now, I'm not at this stage yet with my kids, as some of you are or just kind of cleared through this stage, but the teaching them how to drive stage, I'm going to need some tips on that. Because right now, like, seeing my kids, way like, it's not going to be good when they're finally, like, behind the wheel. And, uh, but I remember, like, it wasn't good with me and my dad either when I was, like, he was very patient with me, but I would not have wanted to get in a vehicle with me, you know? And when you learn how to drive, it's like, um, it's, it's a process, right? You don't just go out and, like, all of a sudden you're a good driver. It's a process. To be honest with you, it's a process some of you haven't completed yet. Because I've been on the roads with you, you know? And, uh... Some of you are looking at somebody next to you like, you haven't finished yet either. You know, like you're, you're not there yet. But it's a process. You get some direction on driving. You go to driving school, you know, like this is, you know, I remember how excited I was to go to driving school because it meant that I was going to be driving soon. Then you watch your parents drive, you know, you observe them, which might not always be the best thing either, you know, but you practice a little bit in the parking lot. When I first went in the parking lot with my dad, I was trying to drive with both feet. I got, like, and it's an automatic, you know. I'm, like, one on the gas, one on the brake. He's, like, what are we doing? Like, what? I'm, like, I, you know, my, he's, like, you're using both, you know, step one, you know. So we're, like, we're, we're back to the basics. And, uh, you know, so do it in the parking lot. And then <clears throat> you get your temps, which is, like, we're, like, letting these kids on the road now, you know. Just because you have a temporary license doesn't mean you should be out here, you know. And then we let them out on the road, and there they are. They're driving And uh, you got to get those hours in. And so this was basically the equivalent of me seeing how fast I could get my dad's heart rate up, you know, like out on the road and like, whoa, whoa, you know, like this kind of stuff over and over again. And then one of my favorite things is you get to do the in-car, you know. And we had at our in-car place, they had PT cruisers, which was like the super cool thing. Like we're like, we're going to be driving the PT cruiser. Now, these PT cruisers were not just any PT cruiser. They were a special PT cruiser that had a brake installed on the passenger side. So if somebody did something dumb, the passenger, the instructor could be like, Like we're going to go ahead and pause right here, you know? And so I got in for my first in-car. I was so excited to get out in the PT Cruiser. I got, you know, the the, the girl drives up to my house. She gets in the back seat, who just got done driving. Instructor's in the front seat. Here I am. I'm pulling out of the driveway. I asked him as we're kind of driving along. I was like, hey, have you ever had to use that brake before? He said, no, no, I haven't. That was about to change. (laughs) And so we come up, we're coming out of the name, and I'm like, all of a sudden, like, on this turn, I'm just so excited. Like, I just went. Like, I just gunned it. Like, whoop. Like, I'm ready to go out into the intersection. And all of a sudden, the next thing I knew, me, we'll just say Sally in the back, and the driving instructor are all launching forward like this, and then back into our seats slamming. And I'm like, what just happened? Because I didn't know. What had just happened was, my instructor had just applied the brake because if he hadn't, we would have slammed directly into a vehicle that was coming through the intersection as I was full speed heading out into the intersection. And he, it was, it was like one of those moments where I'm like, everybody okay? Like, and I'm still trying to figure out what happened. Like, I'm in shock. Like, what just happened? And he, he leans over to me and he goes, now, what did we not do there? I appreciated that he included himself in that, too. I'm like, well, you, you just saved our lives. Let's be honest. What I didn't do was I didn't look left again before I turned out into the intersection and double-checked that there weren't any cars coming. And so that's what I didn't do, you know. Thankfully, I'm a, hopefully a little bit better driver at this point, and we got all that out of the way, you know. Now nobody has a brake on the passenger side, so it's all up to me, you know, to look both ways before I turn. Now, when we think about this process of driving, it's a development process, right? It's an ongoing process, even more so the way of following Jesus, a process both for those and the ones that we journey with. I used to tell our student leaders that the best opportunities for discipleship were those moments when failures or conflict were happening. Like, those are the discipleship moments. Like, when you got two girls that are, like, going at each other over something, you know, they're, they're, they're having a fight, it's like, hey discipling opportunity right there, like teach them how to deal with conflict constructively, right? You remember these kind of conversations that we would have, or hey, some student is like, you know, dealing with some difficulty, and like, this is a perfect discipling opportunity, and I think that that's true. It's discipleship's what really happens kind of in real time and everyday opportunities, and this is what Jesus did. He seized every opportunity to invest in his guys. He gives them real-life opportunities in real time, to, he gives them time. He gives them opportunities to fail and they'd come back sometimes and be like, man, we could, why couldn't we get that demon out? Like, what, you know, we, what did we do wrong? You know, and then like, let's go over it. Well, this one only comes out with prayer, you know. And so that was your mistake. We'll fix it next time. You know, it's the development process. There's one particular story that Jesus was especially patient with his guys. He had just got done telling them, listen, the son of man, i.e. me, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So I could bring it up. But then, along the road, they're having this conversation. We get to the house. Jesus asks them. He says, hey, what were you guys arguing on the road? Jesus doesn't ask questions he doesn't know the answer to. You know, P.S. And so, he knew what they were arguing about. They kept quiet, though, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> like, out of them, like, who was the greatest? Sitting down, Jesus called. The, let's take a pause, guys. Like, let's sit down. Let's circle up. And then he says to them, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And so he uses this as a teaching opportunity, right? And I think this is how we have to see the process of discipleship is through ups and downs and through failures and trials is that this is when discipleship happens. It doesn't happen just when we're sitting down in a core group setting. It happens in real life, in real time. It happens as we are willing to step into people's lives and, and by the way, invite other people into our lives to speak into us and to help us to become all that God created us to be. Just real quick, I'll show you this. This is a, uh, a learning triangle here that I find really interesting. And if you look at the way it's structured, look at how the retention rates in learning when it comes to, um, first of all, lecture, which is the primary way we in the traditional church try to teach people, right, is via lecture. It's not. It's less than 10%. It's not marked, but You can see here as we go down the things that are actually better at developing people and helping people retain information, including practice doing. Like, give me some real-life opportunities to live this out, right? And then to to the last point we're going to talk about here in a minute, 90% retain things better when they start teaching others, right? Which is why this last point is really important and why some of us sometimes get stagnant, I think, in our own walk, is that we've never stepped into the last dimension of discipleship, which is duplication become fishers of men. This is a dimension where disciples become disciple makers, which is really God's design for every disciple is to be a disciple maker. And so the goal should be that all of us are not just making disciples, but we're making disciple makers, that we're launching other people out. It's what Dave Ferguson describes as being a hero maker, that you're making heroes out of other people so they can go be a hero to somebody else and then making heroes out of that person. The way that I describe it is with the double bounce effect. We, we, you guys know that I got, we got a trampoline um, this, this past year for Christmas. Now, they don't make trampolines today like they did when we were kids. When we were kids, you literally could launch your buddy. Actually, Rob Carpenter had a trampoline, and we would launch each other miles off of this, there's no safety net on those things, you know, and the goal would be to, like, you jump just before your buddy jumps, and then they've got that loaded trampoline, and they're jumping into it, and it just shoots them in different directions, you know, so I taught my kids this. Now, I'm at least shooting my kids into a net, you know, so I'm like, I'm bouncing, I'm way bigger than, they're like, bounce this higher, dad, and so I'll bounce into that thing right before them, and they go shooting up way higher than they could just bouncing on their own, right, and this is really essentially the effect. This is what Jesus does for his disciples. He says, listen, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. He's saying, listen, I'm about to double bounce you guys out of here if you're willing to get, into, get you know, roll your sleeves up and be a part of this thing. And here's what I want to kind of leave us with. The church that makes the greatest impact into the future will be the one whose measure of success will be how many leaders they launch into the kingdom. That should be our measure for success. How many people are we launching out to, to be a kingdom leader. The true mark of high-impact church in the next decade will be the church that is focusing on launching leaders instead of merely drawing a crowd. As one leader says, it's measuring sending capacity instead of seeding capacity, right? And that's really what we're after here is that kind of a culture, that we're launching people further and higher for God's redemptive purpose in their life. And I've already gone long. I'm going to give you a couple of examples and then we're going to wrap up. But I think about actually many of the people even in this room that I know are doing this. They're now a next generation on on They've been a disciple, now they're making other disciples, and we start to see what happens. And I think about JB, who's doing this with guys on his campus. He's there. We have some young adults that are going through elementary discipleship right now, and many of them are asking, okay, how can I duplicate that into the life of someone else? I think about Rob Lang's group, who just finished going through the elements of discipleship, and he sent me this long list, like, man, our last group like, meeting was so awesome. We all talked about the what's next question, and how can we duplicate now discipleship into kind of that that next group of people, how can we step out? I think about Nancy Sams, who's taken an interest in investing in some of the older women in our church. She launched a group called Wings, which is Women in God's Service, and she's been discipling women for the last several years. And she said something when we were over at her house one time, kind of along the lines of, and she—I might be misquoting her—but basically, as long as, as God has me here on earth, I'm going to figure out a way to be useful for Him. It's kind of the way that she said it, and uh, and sure enough, she is. She's making disciples uh, who. Are, or have the opportunity to make disciples. This is the double bounce effect. Disciples launching disciples, leaders launching leaders. And this is what I would envision and really hope and love to see here in the next decade at Axis Church. Is this everyday people, everyday people launched into their workplaces, starting discipleship groups, inviting some friends that may know a little something about Jesus or not, and just saying, hey, we're going to walk through these elements. You want to come with us? I think about people that are going to be launched into their families that are really equipping this next generation of young people to make them into disciples. and I envision people being launched in their networks of relationships, starting community groups, core groups, so on and so forth, directing people to Jesus, demonstrating who he is, developing others into who they were created to be, and then duplicating those around them. Launching others into their purpose. This is really the thing that movements are made of, and this is This is what we're after together. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll sing one more song here before we dismiss. God, thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for giving us the model for discipleship, and really, God, the opportunity to get to participate in your redemptive mission, your redemptive plan here on earth. We ask that you would use us, and we know we're not perfect. We need your power. We thank you for the promise that you will be with us to the very end of the age. We just pray, God, that you would continue to work in our lives, work in us and through us. We know that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. God. So our prayer is that you would send out workers, everyday workers, like people around this room, into the harvest field. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.